With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast, and here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Tennis.com podcast. Steve Tigner and Ed McGrogan gathering to discuss, obviously, the U.S. Open. We're just a few days away from it. And, Steve, actually, you know, looking back at about the week's worth of, uh, of writing you've done for Tennis.com and some of the things that we have planned coming up, I think... I think your pieces kind of cover a pretty pretty wide range of of topics and really what's going on as we head into Flushing Meadows. And I wanted to start, we'd be remiss not to mention what happened in Cincinnati, um, an event that I think perhaps was a long time coming considering how how really just unbelievably dominant Federer and Nadal had been for quite a long time. And now, and you know, before that in Canada, he had Zverev as well. He also took Rome, but I think we were sort of due for a little bit of kind of carnage, maybe not, maybe if only because you couldn't have expected, you know, Roger Rafa in particular to hold this form for such a long time. Yeah, I think this was the, you know, the the final, the Kyrgios Dimitrov final was kind of what the ATP has been looking for. Not that they want, not that they want the Big Four to go away, but you know, there's been a question of who's going to come next. And here we here we saw it: Dimitrov 26, Kyrgios 23, two guys that people have been hoping, pretty you know, predicting that they could win slams, but who haven't really fulfilled their potential so far. I mean, you know, it it was sort of destined to happen because. There was only one of the big four in this tournament, Nadal, Federer, Murray, Djokovic, all out, Vavrinka out. Three of the top, I think only three of the top ten play. But in a way, that gives that gives these guys a chance to gain some confidence going into the Open. Dimitrov gets his first Masters title. You know, I think it's hard, really hard to say what that means um, immediately for the Open. I think it's good. Obviously, it's good for Dimitrov um, in the long term, he can look at guys like Vavrinka and, and realize that he can have a he can still really get to the top later in his 20s. Um, it's hard to say what is going to happen to him at the Open. Last year, Chilich won this tournament. He got blown out by Jack Sock in I think the fourth round at the Open, third round at the Open. Um, so we'll see what it is for Dimitrov. I think Kyrgios maybe that may be more important. Him kind of kind of riding the ship after a after a bad summer, a bad, I don't know, bad four or five months, really, where he was injured and, and didn't seem motivated. This tournament, you see, he kind of reminded everybody what, you know, what he's got, what he can bring as player and entertainer. Um, you know, I think maybe it's had something to do with Zverev uh, sort of passing him by or being on the verge of passing him by as the next, you know, next yeah, thing. I don't. I don't think it's on the verge at all. I think it is. It's you know. I think it's happened, and I think he. Um, I think. I, 
I have at least felt on the media side of things that Zverev has gotten that he's sort of taken that mantle, got or getting that respect kind of already, and and you know perhaps in a weird way that also takes some of the pressure off a guy like Kyrgios too, which is always a dangerous proposition. Yeah, that's true. You also wonder whether you know he finally lost to Zverev. He hadn't lost to him. He's two years younger. Uh, maybe that, you know, maybe that sort of, and then seeing Zverev win that tournament, beat Federer, kind of become the next big thing of the moment. You have to think that Kyrgio saw that and and was motivated by that. Um, but he actually obviously had a great tournament, showed really the level he can reach against Nadal. Um, good win over Ferrer. Right up to the end, you know, the very last game against Dimitrov was a weird way to end the tournament for him with three double faults. But, um but, you know, he, he's, he's a name for the Open again. Yeah, and for both guys, you know, you mentioned that it, it, was, it was perhaps in a way likely to happen because of the lack of top 10 players in Cincinnati. Now, the thing you can kind of say on the other side of that is Dimitrov and Kyrgios have had some opportunities before, maybe with some lesser fields, and that hasn't guaranteed any sort of um, – you know, breakthrough either. And in, in this case, in Cincinnati, both of them went through, you know, a very impressive run of matches to get to the final. You mentioned um, Ferrer and Dahl, obviously, with Kyrgios, his two, uh, his last two victories. He also beat, he started the tournament beating Goffin, uh, moved on to Dogopolov, Karlovich, Nadal, and Ferrer, of course. I mean, that's a wide range of players with you know, very different games, very different uh, puzzles to solve that, that Kyrgios made his way through. And you can also say, you know, really the same for Dimitrov, too. He gets, um, you know, he had a bye to start, but he takes out Lopez, then gets Juan Martin Del Potro in kind of the classic early Del Potro um, match because of the ranking. Del Potro is actually unseated in this event still. And then uh, taking out Isner and two tiebreakers, that's kind of a, a, a you know a miracle feat on its own to not even be taken to a third set there. So you know for both Dimitrov and Kyrgios, I you know I think the the day to day was also pretty impressive. And and just to kind of to think back, you know the year started with Dimitrov at the Australian Open with that great semifinal against Nadal, and not long after Kyrgios came on. With victories over Djokovic and, and playing, you know, one of the matches of the year still against Federer in Miami, and we I think we were waiting for, you know, really, you know, was that it from both of those guys this year? And and I think it was great to see, regardless of the big picture, uh, that in Cincinnati, you know, both of these guys brought it to bear. Yeah, it shows you how long the season is, you know. Yeah, good start for both, bad middle now, but now they have time to 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 get back. And I think Dimitrov's playing a type of game that could work at the open, just, you know, very solid. He didn't really do much that was spectacular, but he didn't lose. He lost a serve once all week, didn't lose a set all week. That seems like the kind of game, the kind of, you know, level that could, that could take you through, take you deep at the open. Yeah. It's a more open us open than usual. We'll get to that a little bit later, but I mean, just to, to, to just point to these two, and I know a lot of this is a little bit of recency bias with with Cincy just having uh, taken place, but if you look at you know one particular betting site's men's favorites for the Open, and you know we're down Djokovic, th- th- there's we're down Nishikori, um, Vavrinka as well, defending champ. There's also casualties on the women's side, but 
They actually have Chile. They have uh, Dimitrov and Kyrgios both within the top eight uh, favorites for the whole thing. Eighteen to one, they're given on on those two. So I mean, the the larger point is that it, it, it's really it's a pretty good time for both these guys to be playing well, considering the circumstances of where we're at right now. With um, you know eight months having gone by in a very long year, and and they're going to be players to really watch for. Um, regardless of really how it all kind of turns out uh, in just a few days here. And, you know, if we move to the women's side of, of Cincy, we, it's really been, you know, I, I think for Garbine Muguruza, who, who wins Cincy, who comes off Wimbledon, um, you know, it's been a year where we've talked about a lot of legendary players, veteran players making these grand, um, you know, stands here um, from Federer to Rafa to Venus Williams. Um, but, you know, we're going to, we may very well be looking back on this year as really the true sort of breakout year for Garban Muguruza and, and especially considering what she may still do at the U S open. Yeah. She was really impressive in Cincinnati. She, you know, won from match point down against, Madison Keys. She won a marathon match against Kuznetsova, and then she just really destroyed the one and two players in the world, Halep and Pliskova, in the semis and final. I think we, you know, we we sort of wondered and asked who who might step forward when Serena when Serena was out, and maybe a lot of people doubted that anyone would that anyone would do anything sustainable. But but this showed that Muguruza really has been that person, not just Wimbledon, but finally winning a non-Grand Slam for the first time in two years. Um, Stunning statistic, and, yeah. Weird. And and also just the way she played there. Very um, smart, um, aggressive, but conservative. Just, just a, you know, very different from what she had been in, in the past. Uh, didn't really let things bother her as much. Um, was in control, but was always, you know, s- sort of playing safe. And it was hard to see, you know, you know, when Halep called out Darren Cahill in the final, he really, he didn't have much. They, they really didn't figure out much that they could do against against Muguruza. So, you know, somebody's going to have to figure that out. Right now, she looks, it looks like it's hard to find a way around her. Yeah, and I and I think, I think seeing her do that is maybe a little more eye opening because we're, if you look at the players that. Um, you know, have you know are are in the top ten that are that are active right now, and and we look at kind of what their games look like, you know, if everything is clicking at their absolute peak, and and from a top to bottom game, if you just you know, if we're thinking beyond one shot or beyond one ground stroke, I mean, Muguruza at her apex probably has that game that you know is is not only capable of, of really beating a lot of play, beating everybody, uh, anyone, I should say. Um, it's, it's obviously proven well across a variety of surfaces to clay grass already, you know, has, has those slams and, and, you know, certainly, you know, just won a pretty big hardcore title here in Cincinnati. Muguruza, I should say, uh, two points. One, she is the betting favorite at, at the open, four you know, four and a half to one. Next would be Pliskova at seven and a half to one. 
so you know clearly she's you know she's given you know that uh that favorite that favorite label i'm kind of curious to see what uh seed she will be I'm, that just eludes me at the moment the other thing you mentioned was that she won from match point down uh in cincy um that was also the case with dimitrov uh a pretty pretty interesting uh uh comparison there there to have two champions um you know, come back from that to, to prevail. And, you know, Muguruza, who she, you know, we, we haven't mentioned who she beat in Cincinnati. Um, that's for kind of a, a good reason. And it was because it was really the latest instance of this Simona Halep kind of horror show in the really the biggest matches of the year. She takes one game, um, you know, from, from Muguruza all match. And um, it's, you know, look, we're, we've been talking about Muguruza's year from from really how we sum that up. And for Halep, it's you know, it's 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 been a difficult one if you just look at really you know the crucible, the big moments that she's just not been able to do it in. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that Cahill said when he was talking about her loss the pre- previous week in Montreal, another blowout loss where she really she wasn't in that one at all. Um, he mentioned that there's still lingering effects from the French Open final. You have to think that's going to be true, but she's played well enough to make you think, okay, she's put that behind her, but obviously she hasn't. Um, that, but you know, so when she gets in those, maybe when something goes wrong or she falls behind or she gets nervous or has to play a big match, there's still thoughts from that from that loss. Um, I wouldn't. I would. This loss just seemed to me to be more excusable. She just didn't have her forehand. She just didn't. She couldn't hit it. Muguruza was better. Um, Halep was still trying as far as until about four, four zero in the second. Then, then she kind of caved. But, but you know there was effort there, and I think she just didn't have one of you know one of her best shots. She just couldn't make it. Um, but, uh, but just one more thing on Muguruza is she hasn't never been past the second round at the Open, so that's going to be something to consider. She really hasn't hasn't done much there. I think she's she's kind of been burned out at that point of the year different years that's obviously not the case right now but we'll see whether you know what it'll be something new for her to 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 go deep at the open yeah and we'll see really how i think she responds excuse me to you know to this this favorite label um at the open the regardless of of really the seed she has one thing for the open this year it's and it's particularly true I think on the women's side, even though the men's has certainly has its omissions of its own, like I was saying, you know, with a lot of star power, not there for, uh, for this tournament, it'd be interesting to see who gets, you know, the night matches, who really fills that marquee, um, in New York, you know, Muguruza, you could expect her to be put up there. Um, and, uh, I I think the response to that and, and to, I think we'll tell a little bit about maybe where this open goes from her. You know, I, I think I, I actually think some of her earlier matches are going to be interesting to see just on that on that respect as well. Um, you know, before we even talk about her, you know, in the the later rounds of the event and you know how those matchups could go. To move a little, to pivot a little bit to kind of your next set piece that actually just came up today on. On tennis.com this is uh tuesday afternoon we're recording this um i just want to get your sense of how uh you, you thought of the piece that you wrote is is a statue of arthur ash that is amongst 
statues in Richmond, Virginia, it, 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 on its um, on its on its uh, really monument to the Confederacy, to to great Southern uh, Army generals, leaders that obviously has been in the news for uh, of late for the events in Charlottesville, and just kind of did you. I was unaware that Ash had a statue in there, and I, as I was researching it a little after I read your piece, it was even more surprising that uh, his statue was put in there many, many decades later uh, than all these other monuments were installed. Most of them were were put in back um, at the turn of the century and uh, moving into the early 1900s, but uh, were, I mean, were you aware of this as you were conceiving this piece? And just what did you kind of uh, find out about it, you know, with some further research you didn't know before? Yeah, I knew there was a, I remember there was a controversy about a statue that was put up in Richmond um, in other pieces that I've written about Ash. I came across it, but I didn't realize he was part, he was on the same monument Ave as, as the Confederate leaders. I hadn't realized that. Um, so that, you know, that idea just came together with, with what's going on right now in that area. And, and also just reading that, that some people think Richmond will be the next sort of flashpoint because, because they're talking about taking down those monuments, which were a big part of the city, um, the central part of the city that would be a big deal to, to bring those down. Um, and Ash is sort of the only one person who's not a Confederate general along Monument Avenue with a statue. So it's, it's, it's an odd sort of a strange place. I mean, it's great that it's there. Um, it was controversial when it went up. I think whites and blacks wondered, both wondered, wondered why um, he would go there. The, the initial idea was, was the sculptor, a sculptor wanted to do a, a, a um, statue of Arthur Ashe. Ash was dying at the time. He gave him, Ash gave him his blessing, gave him some suggestions for for how to make it, for what to do with it. Um, the sculptor did those. Um, Ash died just as he was starting work on it. One of the last things Ash did was to send him some photos for, for references. Um, so the sculptor really felt like he had to follow through on this. And But he had no concept that it would go on Monument Avenue in Richmond. He, I think he thought it would be maybe at a black sports center or some kind of sports center in Richmond. But but when the governor of Virginia, Douglas Wilder at the time, who was a friend, a friend of Ash's, saw it, he said it has to go on Monument Avenue. You know, it's just that's the place for it. Most people didn't agree. Most people in the city didn't agree. But but the city council finally voted for it. Um, and and it's there. And I think it's I think it's been accepted there. And I think, you know, if they pull down the statues, that's one that's that's the one that's not going to get taken down. It's a very striking image of the of the sculpture that was created, as you said. And if you go to the piece, um, we have a full uh, shot of it all. It's it's as you said, it's of Ash um, when he was dying, and he, as you put it, he he requested to to have himself represented in this really emaciated form. Um, but it, it's you know it's it's also striking in that he is you know holding a tennis racket, holding books, and is surrounded by um, children in the, in this statue. It's 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 you know, catching for a lot of different reasons. And, um, and I, you know, it's certainly a piece I think everybody should, uh, should take a look at. I, I do want to lift off that to just one question, maybe about the upcoming U S open. And, and, you know, I think different sports have, have delved into, into politics, into current events really maybe That's the, the better way to put it, 
you know, I think some do it more than others. I think a lot of it is reflective of, of the particular, um, of the athletes and, and, and kind of their, their, um, you know, comfort or willingness to, to, to take, you know, to take sides, to really voice any, um, thoughts in this. I wonder if, if, um, if you would expect anything sort of different at this year's U S open in particular, whether it is sort of, uh, you know, whether it is really a topic of, you know, because of really all that's gone on over the past year and, and we are in, um, you know, it's a worldwide event, but it's obviously centered, um, where, you know, a lot of the worldwide discussion has, has taken place. Do you sense that, you know, the sport or its athletes in particular, you know, will want to, uh, you know, kind of explore those topics of conversation in, in a sport that in the past there has been a lot of that. But I think, I think in recent years, tennis has been kind of a little bit, um, you know, with some exception, a little bit more silent than other sports. Yeah. I think when, you know, you know, I think with Serena absent, I think she would have something to say. I think that, you know, she would be asked and would have something to say about it. I think with her absent, maybe there'll be a little less, um, maybe Venus will. Um, I mean, I think there'll be an undercurrent of the idea of diversity, uh, that the USTA, you know, is, that's a big part of, of what they do and what they talk about at the open and what they like to emphasize. I think that'll be, that is always emphasized there. And, and maybe that will, maybe that will seem to be topical, um, I don't know if there'll be much beyond that. There's nothing I can see. It's a, it's obviously depends on how many of these players are asked about these situations. Um, and other players from other countries are, are sort of up on these things. I mean, I know there's, you know, Novak Djokovic is willing to talk about it, but he's not there. Andy Murray might, um, you know, I think there'll be, I think whatever the USTA does as far as, as far as when they talk about their, their commitment to diversity will, I think will be sort of implied, um, you know, related to what's been happening lately, but I don't know about anything, uh, you know, overt. Mm -hmm. Right. For, you know, for the open, another, uh, another, uh, part of the open picture this year is actually going on this week during qualifying, which is something of a, you know, of a non-event for the most part. There are some, uh, every so often, I think, you know, you'll see a, a, you know, a player that makes, you know, makes their way through there because, you know, they were a, a great past champion or have to play, or you have a really, you know, sort of rags to riches story, like as was the case in Marcus Willis for Wimbledon last year. The big story though, or, you know, we'll see really how big of a story it is, is uh, some experiment, experimentation, innovation in, uh, in, in the qualifying rounds for men and women, you'll see shot clocks and also on-court coaching, uh, which has traditionally been limited to the WTA and not during the slams. So this will not move on into the main draw once that begins. But I think, but for this four-day stretch, which began today, Tuesday, runs through Friday, um, th- that's the uh, the three round of three rounds of qualifying. Um, you know, you or I, both you and I, haven't been to Flushing Meadows yet, but I think we're both curious to see how this works really um you know i think in particular on the med side with the coaching and then the shot clock i mean this is the shot clock has been kind of the topic that has been talked about as if as if it's coming at some point or as if you know 
there's a lot of opinions on it, as I guess what I'm trying to say. And I kind of wonder, you know, maybe, you know, how this, uh, do we expect this to kind of go beyond this? Because one, one thing I think about for the slams is the power that they wield, um, you know, once things are sort are tested often or embraced by these pillars of the sport, there's a better chance than not that maybe we could see them, you know, as regular day to day life on the tours. Yeah, definitely. You know, the 32 seeds that didn't happen until the U.S. Open and Wimbledon got together on that, and and you know now there's half the tournaments, half the draws are seeded in in a lot of tournaments. Um, but the shot clock is something I've never liked the idea. It seemed too rigid to me and too it seemed a little risky as far as what if something happens where a player gets down to the end of a shot clock on a big point, some through no fault of his own, seems to be seems to be trying to solve a problem that isn't really there in my opinion. The game maybe at times seems slow, but but I don't I don't find it to be a major problem in you know the pace of play myself but maybe you know the, there was a shot clock at a tournament in australia in during the 80s that that went off apparently from what i know there were no problems at all no players had any problems um mcenroe played it you know the big players played it uh, maybe we'll find out that 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 it's good that it that it keeps things moving and nobody really has any troubles and you know i'm very I'm curious to see that i do think it's i do still think it's kind of a risk and sideline coaching, which will be more open than it is on the WTA tour where the player has to request a coach once a, once per set and has to come out and, and it's sort of a private conversation, even though it's Mike, this is just, this is just coaching from the sidelines will be allowed. Um, I don't know how, you know, I, I like the WTA rule and I sort of liked having the slams not have coaching be the, you know, be the sort of the traditional you know, allow W coaching during WTA tournaments and don't allow it during slams seem to make sense as far as what the slams represent to me. So we'll see where, where this goes. I, I sort of feel like the, the shot clock, if it, if it, if it proves effective here, could continue, could be something we see. I don't know about sideline coaching. I think the most of the top men would be against that. Um, I don't know if that will be something that will take over. But, but I do think the shot clock is a possibility. I do too. Cause I, because I'm thinking back to, you know, when, when Hawkeye was really, when that wasn't a, uh, a staple of the tour. Um, and that's, uh, you know, the testing of that, I I'm trying to think of where, where it began, but I, but it was, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those technological, um, elements of the game that, you know, you see and, 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 uh, and how that, you know, how the challenge system kind of came along that that's kind of what a vibe I'm getting, I, I, you know, over the last really couple of years, I just think it's, there's been a lot of noise about it. And I'm, I am curious to see how it, you know, how it looks in person, really. I think you can only, you can really only kind of tell so much on television from it, but it's kind of like, when you're there and when you're kind of really just in the moment and seeing in the player's shoes of how, how sort of quick 20 seconds, 25 seconds really is considering all that's going on and, and, you know, potentially three to four hour matches. I can see a lot of instances where, you know, the shot clock, as you say, is more of a disruptor than really, you know, a regulator of, uh, of time there. So when you go ahead, when you, when you mentioned 20 and 25 seconds, there's one of the first problems. Is it 20 or is it yeah. 25 seconds? The Grand Slams, I don't know which the U.S. Open is going to go with. The Grand Slams are officially 20. 
the rest of the tour is 25. I think people are generally used to 25, and 20 seems fast. If they're going to have a shot clock at 20, that's going to that's go that would disrupt some people. Yeah, well, if if McEnroe did play with a shot clock and there were no issues, that is, you know, that's one <laughs> positive you can already say on it there. And also, I'm sorry, Hawkeye. I do remember the first tournament that it was it was used was in Miami in I think 2004 2005, um, and people in the press and a lot of people thought, well, this is going to take too much time. This is going to you know disrupt the play. And the first few times it was used, people were waiting for it to to waste a lot of time, but it didn't happen. There were no problems. You know, it it was completely smooth from the beginning. So. You know, who knows? And, and and that was, you know, long associated with Hawkeye for his original disdain of it, Roger Federer. That was a big element of it, too. I, he was uh, famous to kind of come out against that, especially in post-match pressers and really his, his reaction on the court for a long time. I think his sort of acceptance of it uh, overall, uh, I mean, he just he did win a Grand Slam title off of Hawkeye uh, earlier this year. So it's, you know. Time sort of heals all strifes, I guess, with these things. So, yeah. and um, you know, I think that that's a good segue into really our final point. I mean, we'll you know the open. We'll see how the draws shake out. I mean, there's a lot that we will, you know, we really won't know until we get those draws made on Friday. But I think, I think, kind of looking at the big picture for, and I think we've really gotten into it a lot on the women's side with our discussion of Mugurus. I think we do have that consensus favorite right now um and still a lot of you know a lot of really wild cards um dark horse potential candidates but i i do think we have you know we're also gonna have maria sharapova back at the slam we'll see how that turns out i think i think that's kind of you know some some thoughts um from the you know from the top of the draw of what we're gonna see um on the women's side here. I, I, and, and as we move to the men, I think, I think really the big story, especially when we, we would consider who's out of the tournament and who's in the tournament. Um, you know, you and I just discussing before that, you know, Roger and Rafa who have really carried this year with the exception of Alexander Zverev, who is certainly in my mind, one of the three or four favorites to win it all. And that's, you know, that bears itself out with a lot of, um, a lot of people's thoughts too. That's no hot take on anything, but Roger and Rafa are, you know, where do we see them after eight months of tennis after, you know, success? I don't think either man could have, uh, foreseen to the degree, even though Rafa over the last month or so has had some very painful losses that he's taken. Um, how do you kind of view the two, you know, the two big guns at the moment coming into the U.S. Open? Yeah, it's pretty vulnerable. You know, you also throw Murray in there, very um, who's been hurt. But Federer and Nadal, you know, the best players of this year by far. But are they, you know, are they reaching sort of a limit right now? You know, Federer physically has hurt his back. And, and I feel like if once that happens, it can happen again. It can become something that's... That, that he will need more time to really take care of than, than he's been able to. And Nadal is probably even, you know, he's probably even in struggling more than, than Federer. Federer made the turn, final tournament in Canada. Nadal lost to Shapovalov and then lost to um, Kyrgios badly, played very poorly against Kyrgios. And, and, you know, he's been to the quarterfinals 
he's number one in the world now. He's been in the quarterfinals of his last three tournaments, hasn't been past the quarterfinals. And I felt like after the Kyrgios loss, he, he, you know, he, he usually doesn't put much pressure, try to put much pressure on himself going into a grand slam. But he did say after the Kyrgios loss that, that you know, at the Open, at the year's last big event, I need to show why I'm number one. You know, it's not really a typical Rafa statement, a little more pressure on himself than, than might be normal or might be he might want to put on himself. So I feel like, like he's not feeling like he keeps having these frustrating losses, uh, that he doesn't really hide his frustration the way the way maybe he has in the past. It doesn't, he hasn't bounced back very positively from them. Um, so it, it could be a tough U.S. Open for him. Um, yeah. So that, you know, that opening, he's the top number one seed, so right there you have an opening. No, exactly. And um, it's, uh, you know, again with uh, – and maybe just – a, a quick thought on on Zverev, perhaps too. We we haven't mentioned this this podcast, but I I do I have to say overall, uh, coming off of we talk about all court play, we talk about the ability to match up with um you know with with players that are going to be the high seeds who he would need to face in later rounds. You know, obviously when he played Federer in the Montreal final, we we definitely saw. Um, really, some of the first physical strain that 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 Federer had dealt with for for a lot of this year, um, but I but I still nonetheless came away from that and really this entire season dating back to to Rome uh, when he won that title as well. Um, he's won five overall. Um, I I know that we often you know we're fi- we're trying to find that successor that 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 player who who you know will be the future leader or leaders of the game but i have to say 2017 um as much as it has been about the biggest names and we've mentioned all of them um alexander zverev has been a big part of it and um his us open too is one that going to be watching with you know with equal interest yeah, I think, you know, you look at the top, you look, you know, sort of look at Roger or Rafa, who do you, you know, who do you like at the top? And then to me, with the, you do the same thing with the next generation guys, you look at who do you like, Kyrgios or Zverev right now? You know, up until this past week, you would have liked Zverev. I think, I think he might have been even been the favorite consider you know, among the favorites of the Open, one or two top favorites. Uh, maybe that's not quite as true now. You have Kyrgios back in the mix. Federer's going to play. Looks like Murray's going to play. I think the thing for Zverev and Kyrgios is the Grand Slams. I mean, have they done? Have they really done much either of them at any Grand Slam? I don't know if they've been. As far as I know, they haven't been to neither of them has been to the semis or maybe even the quarters. They, you know, they've made some inroads, but the three out of five hasn't been hasn't been great for them. That's still the next step for both of them to to put together, try to put together a two week event. That's something, I guess, Zverev and Kyrgios still need to prove they can do. Um, you know, you, you know that they're going to do it eventually, but is this is this the you know is this the tournament? Yeah, yeah. We will. Uh, we have a lot coming from Flushing Meadows with us being on site, of course. Um, you know, tennis.com will have will have really this covered as extensively as I can think of any open that we've covered. Steve, of course, a big part of that. Myself, um, and and a, a cast of thousands from. Uh, from the magazine, the website, and our uh, good friends at Tennis Channel as well. So 
Uh, plenty of open coverage coming. Stay tuned. And for now, thank you for listening to the Tennis.com podcast. Talk to you next time. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com. 